Watson joined by Sarah Lee, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. In theory, the case is a simple question. Must fishing rig owners pay the government for the mandatory government inspectors who attend to those rigs? But in deciding that question, the Supreme Court must consider a more complicated one. How much deference do the courts owe to federal regulatory agencies' interpretations of the law? The prevailing rules, known as Chevron deference after a Supreme Court case involving the oil company, demand wide deference to agencies. But that is now being questioned in a case before the Supreme Court, which might reverse or constrain Chevron deference. Joining us to discuss uh, this legal question is Paige Gilliard, an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, Paige, before we begin, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and the work of Pacific Legal Foundation? Yeah, I'd be happy to, and thank you for having me today. So I'm an attorney at Pacific Legal Foundation. We are a nonprofit law firm that defends Americans' liberties when they're threatened by government overreach. My background, I've been here for a little over two and a half years now. I principally litigate in the separation of powers issue area. So I do a lot of work with clients who are up against um, agencies who are issuing very broad regulations that greatly restrict their ability to do what they want with their land or run the business the way that they see fit. So before we talk about this current case that's at the Supreme Court, what is Chevron deference and what does it mean for, for lack of a better word, constitutional procedure in our policymaking process? So Chevron deference, it's an entirely judge-made concept. It comes from the Supreme Court case Chevron versus NRDC, and that was a case decided in 1984. So it's not a very long-lasting doctrine. I know a lot of people have said uh, the sky is going to fall if we get rid of Chevron deference, but I think it's important to note that it's only been around since 84 and things went on just fine but before it came along. But simply stated, what it requires a judge to do is ask two questions. So first, the judge asks, uh, when I'm presented with this uh, agency interpretation of a statute, first, I'm going to ask if Congress has directly addressed the issue before me. And the judge is supposed to do that by going through what's called the traditional tools of statutory interpretation. So that's looking at the text, what does the text mean in the context of the statute, things like that. After that inquiry, if the statute is ambiguous, then the judge goes to step two, which asks if the agency's interpretation of the statute is reasonable. And if the judge concludes that the the agency's interpretation of the statute is reasonable, they then defer to the agency. Why? How did it end up this way? Because why? Why is it not the case that if Congress did not speak on a question, that ends it, and there is no rulemaking? Yeah, so I I think it ended up this way because there was this idea that I I think it's starting to get pushed back on now that we have these agencies who are experts on issues. And so it was really this idea that, well, the people at the agency, this is their their job to know what's best on the specific issue. At oral argument yesterday, Justice Kagan gave the example of someone at the uh, FDA classifying a, uh, a, a drug for diabetics, I believe it was, as either a supplement or a drug. And so 
she was giving that example as one where, well, maybe that's not something a judge would understand, but people who study these these things do. And so we should defer to their their reasoning. But uh the problem with Chevron deference is it has really grave implications for our separation of powers. Whatever agencies may be experts in, they are not experts in statutory interpretation. Judges are experts in statutory interpretation. And what Chevron does is it really shifts that balance. It's essentially requiring judges to defer to the agency when it comes to issues of statutory interpretation. And that's something that they should be doing in their own independent judgment. Sarah, do you have any background questions? I do. Well, I don't know if they're background exactly, but I have two questions that I'm very interested in. I've read, I know you guys uh, at Pacific Legal uh, had an amicus brief, right? In the Loper Bright, which mm-hmm. is one of the ones that's that was before the Supreme Court yesterday. Um, and that deals with the fishermen. Um, and I've read some of your writing on this at, at Pacific Legal Foundation. And one of the things that struck me in one of the pieces I read was that it talked a great deal about how this, uh, how the Chevron deference has expanded sort of the administrative state, which I think mm-hmm. is partially the, the question of whether or not, you know, judges can listen to experts and make, you know, judgments, um, notwithstanding, there's this other problem of, you know, the growth of the bureaucracy that I think conservatives particularly don't like. And so they're pleased to kind of see that this is before the Supreme Court. There's a lot of discussion that they actually will get rid of the Chevron deference or overturn it. I'm not sure of the right terminology there. Um, so can you explain to me a little bit about how the Chevron defer- deference has led to the growth of the regulatory state? Yeah. So I think the best way to explain it is it's led to the growth of the administrative state because it's given agencies the power of the final say on interpretation. And that's a role in our constitutional system that's supposed to be with the judiciary. So even if the agency's interpretation isn't the best reading of the statute, as long as they can convince a judge that there is some ambiguity in the statute, the judge has to go with the agency interpretation. And so that's really kind of allowed agencies to get in court and and say, well, silence is ambiguous. So yeah, Congress might not have explicitly said this, but the fact that they didn't say something means that you have to listen to us. And so it's really kind of created this system where agencies can go in and be the final say on issues of interpretation. And does that mean, did that translate into more jobs in agencies, uh, more expert jobs, expert positions? I don't know if it's, excuse me, had a direct correlation on more jobs, but I think it What it's done is it's really empowered the agencies to be more aggressive in expanding their authority. So what's happened is they've kind of been able to breathe different life into statutes that were supposed to be more limited. So it's given the agency the opportunity to go in court and really expand their, their reach. And we've seen that in a few instances. One instance, the Clean Water Act is a great example of that. They've been able to go in court and say, <clears throat> you know, this statute now gives us broad swaths of authority all over uh, all of the nation's waters. Um, we did see the court uh, kind of cut back on that in, in the Sackett decision that's, last is that term. The major, is that the major but questions that's just case? One- no, that was a, a Clean Water Act case. Uh, the major questions doctrine case, that was the term before. 
Um, but yeah, that's it, people discuss deference and major questions doctrine a lot of times together. Um, and I will ask my second question now, just to get it out of the way. Uh, you know, I've read um, I've read a little bit about you know the the um, the arguments made yesterday. Um, the last piece I read was from SCOTUS blog, which was a pretty good rundown. And it seemed to me that both the uh, the dissenting judges, the SCOTUS justices, and the arguments from the um, the the attorneys basically making the case that Chevron def- deference should be retained had to do with this issue or this this um, reality of experts in agencies where where judges don't have the expertise to to make these calls. I'm not an attorney, obviously you can tell because I don't know the terminology very well. But isn't it the the role of attorneys who go before judges and justices to present expert testimony so that justices can then make determinations? I thought that was such a strange argument to make. It was almost like, well, you guys aren't really good at this. So, and it was almost, you know, rude. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I would respond to that by saying, I don't think anyone is arguing that, experts don't have a role to play. It's just what is that role and what does that mean for a judge? So um, certainly, you know, judges aren't experts on very intricate um, scientific issues when it comes to developing a new drug, for instance. They're not experts on that. But they are experts on our constitutional system and how to interpret statutes. And so when you have a, a doctrine that requires them to essentially set aside their role uh, in interpreting the statute and put a thumb on the scale for whatever the agency is saying, even if that what the agency is saying is the result of of expert consensus. That's not how our system is supposed try, to let's work. Let's try to make it a little bit more particular. What is the what is the current case, or are the current cases that are being ar- that were argued before the Supreme Court yesterday, and how does the how does the question of agency deference get involved in? Yeah, so the the two cases yesterday involved commercial fishermen. So um, commercial fishing is a very heavily regulated industry. Uh, The main statute uh, that all this regulation comes from, it's the Magnuson-Stevens Act. And that has a fairly complex scheme where you have regional councils that come up with fishery management plans to make sure the nation's fisheries are healthy and sustainable. Um, as part of that, those management plans, the, the councils can require um, fishermen to carry observers on board their vessels. And those observers are there to make sure that the catch is being complied with, limits, uh, fish length, um, weight, those sorts of things. Now, what the agency did through regulation is say, not only are we going to say, yes, you do have to require these uh, observers on your vessel – you also have to pay for them. And that was the main issue before the court yesterday is where did this authority to require the industry to pay and for there, their own was, observers there was no come clear from? congressional statement that, you know, pursue, you know, the observers pursuant to section such and such. Again, I am also not aware. Um, yeah, the, the law didn't say the they had to. The law didn't say that the operator of the fisher of the fishing boat shall pay. No, and in fact, Congress actually 
specifically carved out three instances in which you would have to pay an observer. And that's actually further proof that they had zero intent of industry having to pay in this circumstance. So Congress knew how to require industry to pay. They did that in three specific instances, but not here. So that's you know so, pretty clear so get, intent that they the didn't question, mean this regulation. It get back, gets back to the question of what is Congress saying when it does not speak? Right. So what is, I mean, what what are we to assume then with the sort of separation of powers when Congress doesn't speak legislatively? What, I mean, what is the process? Well, I, I think it's unfair to assume what Congress meant by what they didn't do. So here, uh, I think this case is a great example. Congress knew how to require industry to pay. They clearly didn't in this instance. So it's unreasonable for the agency to infer that that was somehow okay under the statute to require industry. Yeah, I think I read too, actually, at PLF, I just read a bunch of stuff that you guys had written. The reason that the the federal agency that, that puts the monitors on the ships didn't pay initially is because they were dealing with a budget crunch. So they were like, okay, well, how do we make this happen? We'll just make the fishermen pay. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And I I think what made this specific regulation even more troubling is that in the instances where Congress required fishermen to pay, there was a limit on what those uh, prices would be. That wasn't the case here. And the regulation was just completely ruinous. I mean, there's no way a lot of these people could even break even with how much they had to pay. Which I think is what Gorsuch in his sort of, you know, questioning yesterday was kind of saying this the Chevron deference tends to hurt the little guy, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. What it's doing is, you know, and Justice Gorsuch is great in, in pointing this out. He's been a, a very vocal critic of Chevron deference. The federal government is already the most powerful litigant. That's just a fact. They have endless resources. And what you're doing with Chevron deference is putting an additional thumb on the scale in their favor. And so, you know, the little guy, the the mom and pop shop, when they go in to court, Essentially, they have a a board that's set and it's stacked against them. And that's one of the reasons that Chevron deference is so troubling. I have a a question. So if if you were trying to rescue Chevron deference from this particular case and you would say, well, obviously, you know, Congress didn't say that the fishermen were supposed to pay these guys – uh, they said nothing. It's obviously unreasonable. So we can throw it out under Chevron deference. Why is that wrong? Well, I think it's wrong because, well, for a few reasons. One, the, the question presented to the court was whether or not Chevron should be overruled. So um, I think that the court wouldn't have taken this case if they weren't interested in, in getting rid of Chevron. And I think also the the attorneys yesterday did a really great job of pointing out that Chevron isn't possible to save because it's just unworkable in practice. So no matter how many times you tell the judges that they have to do robust statutory interpretation, that's just not what's happening. And it's because Chevron kind of gives them a pass to get out of that robust statutory interpretation. So I don't so, think so it can the, be saved. It's the, if I were um, a lazy or ideologically motivated judge and it was present and a case was presented to me where a rigorous statutory interpretation might not give me the answer that I wanted, I could just Chevron, just cite Chevron and say that I've, that 
we have to let it stand? Is that kind of what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that's true for, for all judges. You know, there's some judges who say, I never find ambiguity in a statute because I always do a robust uh, interpretation and other judges who always find ambiguity. And so it, it kind of uh, has problems on, on both sides. But um, I think what what we've seen is that it is a way for judges to kind of get out of their role as uh, the ultimate say on how to interpret the statute. Now, whether or not that's because there's reasons they don't want to do the interpretation themselves, um, or that's just kind of what Chevron creates. So, in a, you know, until it's gone, they're bound by Chevron. So what happens if it does get overruled? And it looks like there's a lot of discussion that it probably will, which you just pointed out, They because the question before the court was, does it need to be they may not have taken it if that wasn't something that they were interested in doing. Um, one thing I read yesterday was that there's probably not likely to be much difference at all. So all of the sort of chicken little, the sky is going to fall, like you said at the top of the show, is maybe a little overwrought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm i optimistic that they will completely overrule it instead of uh, try to put additional guardrails on it. So I'm hopeful that that's the result. And I actually do think it's going to have a really significant impact because I think a lot of the reason that we've had some some really troubling decisions with Chevron is because judges aren't doing the independent statutory interpretation. Can you give an example of one of those cases? Yeah, so a great example of uh, why Chevron is completely unworkable and, and needs to be overruled is actually PLF's case, Foster. So we asked the Supreme Court to take cert on on the same question um, of overruling Chevron. And in that case, we have our client, Arlen Foster, and he has asked the uh, NRCS, their division, and the Department of Agriculture to review a wetland certification of his property twice. Under the statute, they are required to accept his request for review, but through regulation, they have limited the instance where you can get review to two, uh, two specific scenarios. And they have told him, you don't meet our, as the agency, standards for when you get review. Now, that's clearly contrary just to the plain text and also the history of Swamp Buster. But the court, both the district court and the Eighth Circuit, just reflexively applied Chevron in his case and said that, nope, you don't have to give Arlen review. That's a reasonable interpretation of the statute. And in doing that, they didn't they did not do a robust statutory analysis. They did not look at at, at the history. The Eighth Circuit's opinion actually started with Chevron. And this is the case, if I remember correctly, about the puddle that was declared a wetland. Yes. Is that something? Is that right? Yeah, so he he has a, a farm in in South Dakota, and occasionally, depend you know, South Dakota is a really uh, wet and uh, they get lots of snow, and so occasionally there's this puddle that appears in the middle of his field, and because it's there, he can't plow his field, um, or he risks losing all of his agriculture benefits. That's so. That is an example too of what Gorsuch was saying that this is really affecting. I mean, this guy's just a farmer and. Yep. Somehow, uh, and uh, you know, his the I guess under the Clean Air Act, it was declared a wetland at this puddle. It's or under clean- um, a statute called Swamp okay. Buster. Yeah, so that was that was passed to prevent uh, uh, people from converting wetlands into farmland. But critically, it it exempts artificial wetlands, and so that's a wetland that's created by, in this case, our case, a tree belt. 
Uh, so what happens is snow accumulates under a tree belt and it kind of flows into the middle of the field. So it's not a naturally occurring wetland, but uh, the the government disagreed. They, they say, no, this is a naturally occurring wetland. And because you didn't meet our standards for when we think you should get review, you're essentially just stuck with the situation where you can't plow your hmm. field. Well, um, Sarah, do you have any other any other questions for Paige? No, when do you think we'll know, except, well, yes, I guess I do, except when do you think we'll have a decision in this? Yeah, so it's hard to give a firm answer on, on when a decision will come. It'll definitely be before July. And I think if I had to place a bet, I would say probably in June. I think this will be one of the last uh, opinions that they issue, if yeah, not it, the very it, last it is, one. It is the it's... longstanding practice of the Supreme Court that the most controversial cases of term are decided late in June or announced late in June. Yeah, so I would expect late June. Um, as you mentioned, it's a really big, really big decision. So I would expect this to be the last one. Well, and I know we were going to talk about some of the protesting there, Mike. You have any thoughts on that? I I, I do not. In fact, I was going to ask I was going to ask you guys, uh, you know, was there, I mean, cause we've seen a lot of, obviously in the rhetoric has been really overheated. Were there any demonstrations who was there? So I wasn't physically at the court. I, I listened, uh, from my office, which is one of the benefits of how, how the Supreme Court's doing oral argument these days is you're able to listen live, which is a new feature over the last few years. Yeah. So I think there were a couple of sort of groups that, that are kind of standard for our work that, you know, were out there protesting. I don't think it was a big protest. So it's just interesting. I think that the Chevron deference case, if you're, if you're right, Paige, and it's going to sort of material materially change some things about the bureaucratic state. I can see why the left is interested in, yeah, in holding on to the, it. The, the, the capital G groups, uh, like, I mean, NRDC is mentioned as one of the parties in the actual Chevron case, you know, I mean, they do a lot of, you know, if you're suing, if you're suing the government and relying on government interpretation, government interpretations and expecting your people to one day hold those positions and make interpretations uh, you're obviously going to be hoping that it holds. Uh, and it's all part of the broader demand justice, fix the court, you know. The court's gotten too conservative. You know, you know, oh, oh, no, mm-hmm. the conservatives have their first court majority since the New Deal. We got a packed court, you know, that kind of thing. I think part of why Chevron is so problematic is because it, it takes away the judiciary's ability to be an independent check on the political branches. So really, Chevron, uh, it, it needs to go. The ju- you know judges are experts in interpretation, not agencies. So before we let you go, Paige, is there anything else that you'd like to promote that you or your colleagues are working on? Yeah, we're doing lots of great work at, at Pacific Legal Foundation, especially with the separation of powers. So if you'd like to check us out more, go to pacificlegal.org. All right. Uh, thanks again to Paige Gilliard of the Pacific Legal Foundation for joining us. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.